Olive Branch podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Anwar Mahajni. In this podcast, I interview activists with ties to Israel and Palestine who identify as peace activists and are working on ending Israeli occupation of the Palestinian territories. Today, I interview Libby Linkinski. Libby is the Vice President for Public Engagement at the New Israeli Fund. Libby, thank you very much for agreeing to be interviewed for this podcast um, and sharing your story with us. Um, I was wondering if we could start by you telling us a little bit more about the work you do with the New Israeli Fund. What does the organization do for our listeners who are not familiar with the work of the organization? Thank you so much, Anwar. I'm really honored to be here with you and in conversation with you. As you said, I'm, I'm Vice President for Public Engagement at New Israel Fund, and I've been at NIF, we, we call it NIF also, among friends. Uh, I've been at NIF for almost nine years now, which is also as long as I've been in the United States. Before that, I lived and worked in Israel for about 10 years, um, predominantly in the human rights sector and predominantly focused on uh, ending the occupation and human rights related to occupied territories. But since then, I've sort of taken a step both back into other issues that are affecting Israelis and Palestinians inside the Green Line, and also, um, and now here in the United States, and sort of getting involved in the conversation about there from here, which is quite different. Um, and New Israel Fund is a partnership organization. We've been around for about 41 years. And we are headquartered in Jerusalem and also here. We have offices in the big American cities, North American cities. Um, and we raise about $30 million a year from mostly liberal American Jews, but not only Jews, not only Americans, and not only liberals. We use that money to support um, several hundred progressive nonprofits in Israel across a variety of issues. Um, we've always sort of been on the cutting edge of funding in social change. So uh, what that has meant has changed over time. We got involved in the first rape crisis centers in the 1980s. Um, and at that time, that was very controversial. You did not talk about that in the Jewish community. And here we were saying there are rape crisis centers in Israel. What does that mean? You know what, what that means. It means there's a problem that we're there to help deal with. And over the years, we've... Um, jumped in and su to support emergent movements, whether it was around environmentalism in the 90s, women's issues and feminism, LGBTQ rights of Palestinian citizens, the 20 to 22% of Israeli citizens who are Palestinian um, and who are treated in, in many, many ways as second-class citizens and discriminated against, as you know, and we can talk more about that. We've jumped in to support refugee rights, ending the occupation, and all kinds of issues as they emerge. And uh, yeah, and I've been at NIF for about nine years, but the entire time that I lived in Israel, I was a grantee. I didn't walk around thinking that about myself, but most things that I did in those years were funded in part by the New Israel Fund. So I've been at home here for a long time. Oh, that's awesome. Where we, I think we moved here around the same time because I moved here in 2011, maybe you moved 2012. Yeah, I think I landed in 2000 and yeah, 12, 13, something like that. Yeah, my yeah. 10th year anniversary is coming up in August. So yeah, oh, in two weeks, actually. Uh, amazing. Time flies by. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Mabruk and Mazal Tov on the anniversary. <laughs> um, so you have a question 
more about your background. So what led you to your work with the New Israel Fund and your, work, your previous work with human rights organizations working on issues related you know, to Palestinians in the occupied territories as well as Palestinians inside of Israel. And we can also maybe talk a little bit about the differences of projects there after you tell us your personal story and how you got there. Sure. In some ways, I have always been this and have always been doing this. And in some ways, something happened to me when I moved to Israel as an adult. And I'll explain. I, I come from a left-wing Jewish family for many, many generations on both sides. My dad's side are Holocaust survivors. He was born in the ghetto and they were Bundist, like non-Zionist, communist, Marxist um, revolutionaries. My Zaidi was part of resisting the Nazis as a teenager and came to Canada after the war with my dad as a baby. My dad claims he remembers the boat ride, but they were they were union organizers, human rights activists, um, and leftists also in Canada. That never changed for the, their entire lives. And on my mom's side, my grandparents were early pioneers. They were part of Hashomeretzayir youth movement, which I also grew up in. So I'm fourth generation Hashomeretzayir. So my grandparents moved before the war as teenage teenagers to drain the swamps and build the kibbutzim. They too were very left-wing. And so my parents grew up in that. I grew up in that. The big, the big obstacle that they overcame, they kind of overcame to open the path for me, which was that they got married. My mom is Israeli and my dad is Polish Canadian. My grandparents did not want to come to Israel for the wedding for political reasons, but eventually they made my parents wait for two years and then they did come. And so that, that dilemma was sort of like solved in the generation before. I'm only joking because of course we deal with that all the time is the relationship between diaspora and Israel. But for me, everything that I'm doing is sort of an extension of that story and my family's left, left wing Jewish um, legacy. And so, uh, but that said, I, you know, I grew up my whole life in Jewish education. I went to a Jewish day school and summer camp, Zionist socialist summer camp. And I spent a lot of time in Israel and I spoke Hebrew as a native tongue at home and at school and at camp and in Israel. And yet when I moved to Israel as an adult in my mid twenties, it was for love, not for politics. I met a dude. Why does anyone move anywhere if you don't have to? It's usually that. And getting there in my mid-20s with the sort of politics as they emerged on my own college campus, which was in Canada, and just as a young adult living in New York City, I, I felt when I arrived there like there was a moment where I thought that I would just build a sort of normal life and be a teacher. I had a master's in education, but pretty quickly I realized that I wouldn't be able to do that. And that the way for me to be in Israel and to be engaged in Israeli society and stay true to myself is through activism and through human rights work. And so I got involved first with an organization called Yeshdin, but it was pretty quick before I was working with a lot of different human rights organizations, particularly around the occupation. And I remember that a moment that really stuck to me was um, the first time I went to Hebron 
to Hebron with Breaking the Silence that were about a year and a half old at the time. So it wasn't the whole hoopla that's around Breaking the Silence today. They were just a group of soldiers sharing testimony about their experience. And they had started to do some tours for activists in Hebron to talk about the things that they had done. And it wasn't even their stories. It was just standing there in Hebron and having religious Jews shouting curses at me. I was like, like my head exploded. And I said, like, that was a huge turning point. It wasn't even the interface with oppression. It was the interface with that, that they were shouting curses at us using the Bible and using Judaism. And I grew up in a sort of religious environment. My school was pretty religious and I just like could not circle that square. And then it was a short path to planting olive trees and standing on the front lines of protests in Belin and stuff like that. Yeah, I can say a lot more about that period because there was a lot going on. The, the separation barrier was just be, beginning to be built and there was a feeling of uprise and growing activism in the villages, in the Palestinian villages in the West Bank, whose land was being cut through by the separation barrier. There really did feel like the beginning of a, a real movement and a joint struggle. And it was, it was violent and traumatizing, but also very hopeful to be part of. And so I became a little bit addicted to that world and uh, spent years in that world in a variety of ways. Um, first, as like a real activist and advocate through human rights organizations and just being on the ground every Friday in Belin and things like that. But then eventually also, um, a documentary film came out about that struggle and it um, felt to me like a very useful tool for having Israelis and people around the world understand what we were doing, understand what this was about, getting some, um, some eyeballs and earballs on those stories as, as we were talking about at the beginning of this. Um, so, so yeah, I worked on a couple of documentary films related to the conflict. Noam Shezaf, an Israeli journalist, approached me at that time and said that nobody's having the progressive conversation in English. And he wanted to start up an online magazine or a blog about that. And so I helped to start up 972 Magazine, which then has become, has since become a major publication that so many of us turn to. All kinds of things like that. It was a time of a lot of, um, a lot of new endeavors. And I, I like to get involved in, in sort of like new activism initiatives as they happen. So yeah, and all of that led me towards, towards New Israel Fund when I wanted to move back to the United States. I've just fast forwarded about 15 years, but, but here I am. <laughs> oh, that's fascinating. And I think a lot of the people that I interviewed always talk about the trips that they took with an organization to see what's happening on the ground. And usually it's not with their military service, at least so far. So I don't know. It's like an experience outside of you know, a state institution, right? That made them realize or kind of come to a different understanding of what's happening on the ground, which is fascinating. Did you ever have to do, to serve in the military or? I did not. I was exempt from the military when I was 16 because I had spent the majority of my life here in the United States at that point. So I didn't have to serve. Though I did do the week long high school training like I spent a semester or a year 11th grade I spent in Israel and they took us to this like it's they take all the Israeli high school students to like pretend you're in the military for a week and so we did that which was pretty interesting like I learned how to shoot a gun I was a very hippie 
teenager. So that was like something that I really wrestled with. I didn't want to do it. And then I did do it. And it's a whole story there. But, um, but yeah, I think that, I think that a lot of people share that for a lot of, for, for some re for some reasons that aren't random. So I think that, um, the Israel's policies of separation, which include the, the barrier, include the wall, but are also the whole system of permits and checkpoints and roads that keep us separate, not to mention all the communications and sort of narrative work that's being done to keep everything separate and hidden. It really works on many levels. I, I did not understand that as an Israeli citizen, I could go to the West Bank, I could go to the occupied Palestinian territories without a passport. Like intellectually, if you sit down with yourself and you say, if, if you really think about it, you would arrive at that conclusion. Yeah, I guess I can go there. But the whole attitude is about separation. So it does, it didn't occur to me. And at the time I was married to an Israeli, to the sweetest man, the sweetest kibbutznik and all of his like lovely liberal-minded kibbutznik friends. And I started to get very involved in activism and going to the West Bank. And they would say to me, but how did you get in? And then one would answer for me, oh, she got in on her American passport. And I'd have to say to them, you don't have to show a passport. There's no border. That's the whole point. That's what we're, that's what we're talking about. But like, you know, they don't have family and settlements. They're not themselves going there for any reason. So it, it just, it's totally separated. And so I think those of us who for some reason managed to become proximate either through going over the green line and two Palestinian villages or to Hebron or to East Jerusalem or whatever it is by mistake or on a tour or something or some friend just grabs you and says, hey, there's this thing, you gotta come with me. When you're proximate like that, it does change everything because it's both the experience that you're having and it's also the, how come I've never seen this before? How come nobody told me? That was a huge part of it for me. I said, where were my teachers? Why, how, how come I didn't know? And that's messaging I think that we're hearing from the younger generation of American Jews right now, groups like If Not Now, J Street U, you know, a lot of the discourse coming out of there is simultaneously, I'm against the occupation. And also I've been lied to, that people deliberately left this out. And I relate to that question because I experienced that myself. I'm older, but I experienced that my own self. Um, yeah, they think it's fascinating also to see how the family kind of shapes your activism that could make it easier or harder, of course, but a lot of people who came to also kind of see have a different understanding of the conflict not only had trips, but also met people who are, you know, who are very vocal about what they're doing. Um, or had a family member who's already doing this work. So it's kind of, it looks like it's within the family as well, which makes a lot of sense thinking about it. But then a lot of them have intellectual influences like a book or an author or a film that they saw that kind of shaped their um, understanding. A lot of them mention, um, what's his name? Ellen Pape, is that how I pronounce his name? Oh, yeah, Ellen Pape. Yeah. Interesting. Really, people are mentioning. Mm -hmm. Multiple people mentioned his name, and I think it's fascinating. So I don't know if you have any intellectual influence on you and the way you understand things, or an author that you go back to, or a book. I have a couple. Um, it's a really good question, and I'm gonna like keep thinking about this. I'm sure for days after this conversation, but I think there have been a couple. 
One is just something that happened very early on for me. I went to McGill University in Montreal. Montreal is a really interesting place, was a very interesting place in the late 90s. It still is um, because it has a pretty significant Jewish student population. It also has a very large um, Arabic speaking and, uh, and Middle East, North African uh, population in part because of the French. So there were like a lot of French speaking Lebanese um, students and Algerians and Jordanians, lots of Palestinians. And I grew up, as I said, Jewish day school, Jewish summer camp. So the first time that I was really meeting non-Jews in my, in my life, I was meeting a lot of Arabs and a lot of Palestinians. Um, that's who was there. And also we gravitated towards each other because they, like me, you know, at age 18, wanted to stay up late drinking coffee and smoking cigarettes. Like that's, we know how to do that. That's like who we are. So I, I had a lot of Middle Eastern friends really early on in school. And in my second year, I took a women's studies class and I really connected with this young woman, um, a Lebanese Palestinian Canadian. And um, we were walking home to her apartment one day to study for the something related to this women's studies class. And she took out a keychain and the keychain said the word intifada on it. And my jaw dropped for me even with my left-wing family. And this is by the way, 1997. So it's like right between the two intifadas. But still that word to me meant like killing Jews, killing Israelis, like that, that was my framework for understanding the word. That was the narrative that I heard, that I knew. And so to see this friend with a keychain that's, and I said, what the F is that, Zaina? What is that? And she said, babes, that's the freedom fight of my people. And I said, what? And she said, that's the freedom fight of my people. That's how we become free, is that word. And I was like, my brain exploded. And I understood in that moment that there was, I mean, it was such a hugely influential moment for me because I had never heard it before. And it was like, in that moment, I thought there's a whole other, there's a mirror happening here that, it, that I've been totally sheltered from, that I'm totally blind to. This is pre-internet. There's mm -hmm. no internet. There's no cell phones. The world is a different place than it is today in terms of the flow of information. And I was a pretty precocious teenager, but I was a teenager in, that had grown up in a pretty exclusively Jewish environment. So this moment where she said the intifada is the freedom fight of my people just like burst it all open for me. And I've been in some way like in, a, in an exploration of that moment ever since. That was 25 years ago. And, but when I, when I got to Israel, I met an attorney named Michael Sfard, who now is also the author of a book called The Wall and the Gate. Um, he was litigating many cases at the time and still is litigating many cases in the Israeli legal system. Um, and specifically, he does a lot of strategic litigation to the High Court of Justice, Israel's Supreme Court, on behalf of Palestinian individuals, Palestinian villages. He litigated a lot of the cases around the separation barrier on behalf of the villages. And that's a lot about what his book is about. It's asking the question, like, ultimately, did I, like, am I collaborator with this system? Was it for good or, or what? You know, he's asking those sort of moral ethical questions about it. Um, but I met him, we were all much younger and he was this Israeli guy, a bit older than me, brilliant, who could do a million things, who could do anything. 
um, who could be the prime minister, who could be a professor in university, who could write a book, who could, but he was representing Palestinians in the court of law. And just that was like mind blowing to me. And I said like, whatever he knows, that's what I wanna know. And I followed him around like a little puppy dog, asking him questions and asking him if I could do work for him and could I translate his stuff to English and what does he know and how could I learn? So Michael was like a huge, huge and continues to be a huge influence on me. And the last thing, the last example that I will give of something influential um, is actually a hip hop group. It's a hip hop band, a multilingual, multinational, multi-ethnic hip hop band that came out of Jaffa, that came out of Yaffa. Um, they're called Sistemali, and there's like a million of them. There's like 12 of them on stage, and they're rapping in like six different languages and playing the accordion and the drums and the guitar and spoken word and singing, and it's a lot of a lot going on. But for me, I had some dark moments in activism. It, there's a lot of violence and a lot of trauma and we saw people getting shot and we lost people, Palestinian friends, even Jewish friends, American friends um, in those protests. And there were times when I felt like I was being gaslit by the whole society. <laughs> like if it's so clear to me what's right and wrong here, then how come people around me are just not seeing that? And that created some moments of real despair. And then I would see Sistemali on the stage with Palestinians and Jews and Ethiopian Jews and Mizrahi and Ashkenazi and Palestinians from Haifa and Palestinians from Yafu and from the West Bank. And, and just like the, ability to experience and imagine belonging and togetherness, they were like a lifeline for me in some of the hardest moments. And so I also like turn to them now sometimes and just like put the music on if I'm like having a hard day. Um, and that's really, really important because our, I think one of the hardest things about activism in this space is finding those places of resilience. Like, you know, it's hard and there's a reason why people check out on both sides, Israelis and Palestinians, like it, you know, it, it's hard to keep yourself motivated and going. And part of what's missing, you know, with all of the discourse of separation is that feeling, that real feeling of like, it's possible to be together. So Sistem Ali with all their Balagan on stage, like gives me that feeling and always has. That's a good one. I've never actually heard of them. Um, <laughs> I need to go check them out. <laughs> I'm curious. Um, you know, we kind of started addressing the challenges that you're facing, and maybe we'll continue with that, and I'll ask you more about different things, or maybe we can come back to kind of the projects that you're working on in the Green Line and then inside of Israel with Palestinians. I was curious about the differences, the similarities that you're facing, and then I wanted to move on to the challenges, uh, because I feel like you have a lot to tell when it comes to that, and I, people would probably benefit from hearing that and how you navigated these challenges. And I'm sure in each side, it's a different story, right? Working in the occupied territories is totally different than working inside of Israel. Um, and, and the toolbox that you have, of course, is different. And being in the diaspora adds a whole other layer as well <laughs> of like, I mean, and truthfully, like, so I'll say just about the, the work. New Israel Fund is very focused. We're very focused um, for the next period of time, but what is planning these days, right? I mean, how we go about our work and all of that, as you know, from being in academia, like 
things are changing all the time, but what we know is that for the next period of time, and, and this has been a focus also in the past, we're very focused on, on Arab-Jewish partnership at every level of society within Israel, including politics, including health services. I mean, I'm thinking about what's top of mind now after four national elections and a global pandemic, but, but it's also in the schools and um, in arts and culture, in activism, in the, this fostering a sense of shared belonging and shared commitment to the place and to each other on every level of society is really a, a big focus for New Israel Fund. And, uh, and so that's, that's a big area that we're promoting on the ground right now. Alongside that, I'm, I'm very invested in the world of culture change and narrative change. I think a lot about what's happening on primetime television and on the radio and on the front page of the magazines. Um, who are the heroes that young people are turning to? Who are young people listening to? Um, and when you start to think about that in the context of activism, I think there's a lot of opportunity. Like I think a lot about Colin Kaepernick here in this country, you know, because in America, who are the heroes? They're footballers, you know, let's let's be honest. Um, and to be able to, to think about the relationship between um, activism and taking a stand and and being a hero and being a role model and thinking about who those people might be and what those sectors might be also in Israel for young Jews and for young Palestinians living there. So I'm very uh, involved in that kind of work as well. Um, together with Nathan Cummings Foundation, New Israel Fund has started to build a program around that that supports um, arts and culture work and narrative change work. I, I think it's extremely important. I also think it's an important point of connection for here. So because I'm based here in the United States and my role and my job is a storytelling role and a translation role, I, I often tell people that I'm, I'm, just a, I'm, I'm just a high profile translator, but it's not, it's not only a linguistic translator, it's looking at the political and social environment and context here and looking at the political and social context there and figuring out where those connecting points are to, to make our realities more understandable to one another and leverage our relationships towards real policy change in both places. Like that is ultimately what it's also about. So, so that's sort of some of the work that, that I'm focused on. I'm very excited about some of the things that I'm seeing in hip hop in Israel right now, um, where actual cross-section is happening between like Russian breakdancers and Palestinians in Lod, or um, uh, all kinds of really interesting overlaps between Mizrahi music and Ethiopian spoken word. There's a lot going on just under the surface in that world of sort of hip hop spoken word and rap. Um, I'm also, I'm forever, interested and excited in the film and television industry coming out of Israel, where so many productions have now also caught the attention of the world um, and Netflix and the big streamers. And so sort of looking for where opportunities might be to support projects at an early stage who could catch that energy and that excitement like our boys did. And with all of the various kinds of criticisms that came from the far right and, and others um, around our boys, this this was a huge breakthrough moment for people like me, for people working in, in peace, to understand the, the 2014 summer from that nuanced, beautiful 
artful perspective that they were able to bring out in our boys. Um, so, so looking for all of those, those kinds of connecting pieces as well. And so that's within the within Israel itself. How about the work that you're doing uh, in the occupied territories? Are you focused on any projects there that you specifically want to talk about? Well, so New Israel Fund is our support for work that happens in the West Bank and in, in the occupied territories in general is through our support for an amazing cohort of Israeli nonprofits that do that work um, over the Green Line. So if it's B'Tselem or Yesh Din or Breaking the Silence, Mahsam Watch, a personal favorite of mine because women in their, you know, seven, not exclusively, but founded by women, you know, retirees who traverse the hills and stand at checkpoints to monitor what's going on. And I love those interactions. I think that's also a part of the culture that like, you've got a 75 year old woman talking to a 19 year old soldier at a checkpoint and like, that could be his grandma. And she is talking to him in that way. She's saying, no, 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 don't you do, you know? And like, there's, they're, 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 um, they're powerless against that phenomenon of their safta, their grandmother. Um, I wish they were even more um, susceptible to that kind of criticism. Um, but I, 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 I think that grandmothers play a very important role in many social struggles. So I'm partial to that. But that's the work of the New Israel Fund in terms of West Bank and occupied territories. And I have always been very passionate about those specific organizations. That's how I got my start in this field. I'm also very excited about some cultural activism that's happening in in the West Bank and in East Jerusalem as well. There's, uh, you know, everything is a little bit strange, of course, because of COVID, but there have been, there've been sort of like an upswing in things like Palestinian music festivals, identity museums and heritage sites. Um, and I'm, I'm excited about a lot of that. I think that when we think about May, and what happened around the world in response to and connected to war and violence that was happening in the region. I think that one of the things that I heard with the sort of centering of Palestinian voices in the media was a sort of call about um, peoplehood, about we are one people, whether it's in Sheikh Jarrah, whether it's in Gaza, whether it's in Beta, in Bil'in, we're one people. And I think that things like music festivals, heritage sites, and like the Museum of the Palestinian People that's coming up in Nablus, like those are important parts of that equation. Um, as you know, from being from Um al-Fahim, where a lot of that also takes place within, you know, 1948 Israel, but Um al-Fahim plays a really important role in establishing Palestinian identity. And I see that happening also in the West Bank. And I think that that's a, a really important piece of the puzzle going forward as well. That's fascinating. So um, talking about the so we talked about the projects. Let's say, what are the personal challenges that are facing you as an activist working in these two, you know, spheres, right? One that it supposedly you're allowed to work within the legal system inside of Israel, right? Because according to the law, Palestinians in Israel are supposed to be equal citizens unless you go to the nationality law, which is a little bit the nation state law, which is where it gets a little bit murky there because according to the Supreme Court, it doesn't question that equality, even though it does. Right? Um, while working in a context where 
you know, it's not clear. International law is clear about what should be happening in the West Bank and Gaza, but it seems like it's unclear to Israel or trying to kind of make it unclear, right? Um, what's happening there and what should happen there. So what are the challenges like, because you're dealing with two, supposedly two different frameworks, even though, you know, this the state itself, the oppression is kind of based on the same, in this, like it has the same roots, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think that you're speaking to a discourse that is right now among the, the hottest, the hottest button pieces of this issue right now is about that, is about this notion that actually, you know, that Israel is one regime that is an unequal regime, but that the policies of of inequality are really different when it's inside the green line versus when it's in the occupied territories. And I think that that, that on, on the personal level though, I am very privileged in this picture. And, you know, cynically a very close friend of mine used to say, I'd like come to visit, you know, cause I've been in the US now for nine years. I would come back for a visit and, and see this activist friend of one of my closest and say, how's it going? And she'd say, well, Israel is still a free country for the Jews. And in many ways, that's true. Like I'm free to move in and out. I was able to visit three times during the pandemic, even because of my citizenship. You know, I'm, I have privilege in terms of my freedom of movement, my access um, to people and places. And I have never been targeted. I've never been stopped in, ben, in the airport, I haven't been stopped at a checkpoint and questioned or detained for my politics or for my identity. So I have a lot of privilege in that regard. Um, the same is not true for my Palestinian colleagues and friends. Um, and I also, though, am straddling the conversations here. Um, and you mentioned earlier the confusing and complex way that anti-Semitism shows up in these conversations, both for real and the way that it's weaponized in these conversations so that it becomes very challenging to be able to understand what true anti-Semitism is today, though we know that it does exist and that it is on the rise. And with my history that I talked about in my family, the last thing that I wanna do is be uh, in any way a conduit for contemporary anti-Semitism. And on the other hand, I will criticize Israeli government policies, particularly when they oppress another people or peoples, because we did not survive what we survived in order to turn around and have that happen in our names. And I will speak about that until I am blue in the face and nobody will tell me with my history and my family legacy to shut up about that because I won't do it. And, and so, you know, that's, that is a real challenge though. And even there, I have the privilege, you know, I would never wish the trauma that my ancestors endured on anyone um, but it would be very hard for somebody to point at me and say anti-Semite, though they do. Of course they do, because any criticism of Israel can be perceived in that way um, and can be misused and mislabeled in that way. So even, even when it's me, but it's a little bit ridiculous with like, with, you know, with where I come from. And so, but it, but it is a challenge because 
in this country in particular, because people to, are afraid to say what they see. People are afraid to say what they believe to be true because the language and the discourse is so polarized and so coded that it's not even that people are using language not just to describe reality, but to situate themselves on a political map. And inadvertently, you'll say, somebody will say, oh, you know, I saw this impoverished Palestinian village and it was in this area of the West Bank or something. And somebody else will say, anti-Semitism. It's like, you know, the person doesn't even know what they said that got them into that mess. They just described what they saw. That's a real challenge. We need to be able to talk about what we're seeing um, we need words to be able to describe the reality that we're encountering that isn't coded. And right now that's that's a really big challenge. I do think that um, there's a there's a there's a question right now for me, because there has been a political changeover in both countries. And of course, the Trump reign was terrifying and awful, but it was fairly short lived, knock on wood. Um, it did sort of reveal what many people of color have been saying is the case in this country for decades, but it did reveal an underbelly of racism and white nationalism and white supremacy. But like, he's not in power. He's not in the Oval Office anymore, Trump, I mean. And Netanyahu finally is not in, in, uh, in Balfour anymore either and isn't prime minister. So it, it does actually mean that progressives like me have a, a bit of a different kind of a seat at some different tables. And so we'll see, like we'll see what actually is possible from this different perch where we're not being sort of run down by these authoritarian ethnic supremacist leaders, but actually kind of dealing more with like, you know, somewhat moderate, somewhat right in both countries, you know, different players and it puts us in a bit of a different role. So. So we'll see. Yeah, that's, um, I, I think it's always a discussion of, first of all, we, let's use terms, right? Apartheid, like, oh, you know, we use, oh, it's not apartheid. You know, Israel has Arab citizens and we see Arabs because a lot of people avoid to label them as Palestinians, right? Outsiders. Or let's say you say, you know, Zionism versus some, uh, you know, anti-Zionism anti is an anti-Semitism or any critique of Israel is a critique of uh, the Jewish community as a whole. And I think in the U.S. specifically, it gets really, uh, for me as a teacher here in the U.S. as a Palestinian with Israeli citizenship, teaching about these topics, you know, coming from a Muslim family, I always have to dance, like, I feel like it's a delicate dance, right? Knowing that, you know, the discourse uh, or the rise of anti-Semitism you know, never really disappeared, but like it's becoming more public, louder in the U.S. Um, makes me kind of pay attention to the words I'm using, the context, and having to provide a lot of texture <laughs> to what I'm talking about. And that's why I think activists like you are important, because for people like me, sometimes any critique of Israel is like, oh, it, like one time to give you an example, I was um, I was having a conversation with somebody related to my husband who's American, Catholic, right? His family's Catholic, white. And this person, there was a mention of Ariel Sharon's dad, I think it was a few years, I can't remember how many years ago it was. And I, you know, I started talking about his legacy, the bloodshed that happened under his um, command. And she's like, oh, are you hating him because he's Jewish? 
And I was like, no, <laughs> there's so much that needs to be unpacked there, right? And I feel like that's immediately like that. Oh, are you hating him because they're Jewish? Or in you, it's just, it's a little bit disheartening and concerning, right? That you can shut somebody, shut down what they're saying and kind of delegitimize it just by using that, you know, that critique. But I also know that I've also encountered people in the US. I lived in Ohio. I lived in areas where, you know, I'm the darkest person there visited, where I also hear, you know, things that are concerning about Jews that makes me very uncomfortable, right? And that's when I'm like, politicians are not making our job easy. <laughs> They're just making it more complicated. And it makes it even more exhausting because we have to always, always explain and explain and explain and explain. Um, so I think work, work by activists like you is very important because they might not call you, they won't call you um, anti, maybe they will, but I think more, I've heard more of like a self-hating Jew was something that a lot of activists commonly hear, especially from their own community um, as well. So yeah, I appreciate you sharing these challenges with us. So talking about these challenges, I was thinking of, you know, young activists who are worried, you know, I wonder how many people who think the same way you do and I do, but they're worried that if they start becoming public, they're going to face, you know, backlash, they're going to lose friendships, they're going to lose people in their lives, especially, you know, in families, you know, you acknowledge your privilege um, and you said that your family kind of had similar views or still has similar views to what you have. What kind of advice do you give to them um, on how to navigate that and to encourage them to kind of speak out? I think that, first of all, there are a lot of resources out there that you can turn to to get help specifically on this. And it sort of depends on the specifics, but there are, you know, there are groups who are specifically dedicated to having this conversation, having an open conversation within Jewish spaces. Um, I haven't done that much of, I haven't needed it that much. Cause as I've told you about my family also, like we just aren't American in that way. So we don't have the long history that some of my friends and especially my younger friends have where their grandparents were like founders of APAC and stuff. That's not my family history. So I didn't, but there are lots of, there are lots of resources out there for that sort of thing. I think that um, one thing that I have come to understand, and I did not walk into this world of activism understanding is that we are over intellectualized about these issues where where I now understand how emotionally driven they are for so many people. Um, so much so that I have like a bit of a side hustle myself. I call it Israel therapy. And it's actually, I'm turning it into a podcast too in a series of events because I've had the experience over the years of a lot, a lot of different kinds of people turning to me with questions and advice, seeking advice and help about having the conversation about things that they might do. Should I sign this petition? Should I not sign this petition? And I've learned through having many, many, many of these kinds of conversations with people that they often think that they're asking me for like a factual answer, but really what they're needing is to like explore all of their feelings around it or the person like their, their aunt who just yelled at them, her feelings around it. And like, it's not going to work to say, but this happened in 1948 and this happened in 1971. And then Ariel Sharon said this thing. And then Arafat said that thing. Like, 
those things are important. And I really can't stand when people who literally know nothing and can't point to Israel on the map, start lecturing me about this side or that side or the other thing. But that said, it's often not those factoids that are going to move a conversation forward. And it is acknowledging and understanding like the emotional underpinning for the other person. And I know that that's really hard when you're young and radical because you're right and you're proud and you want to convince everyone. I'm saying you, but I'm talking to like the 21 year old Libby. Um, But what I've learned over the years and what I would say and do say to young activists is don't forget that those people in your life are coming to it from an emotional place. Jews, Palestinians, Christians, like people are, it's a deeply loaded emotional topic and relating to it on that level will help you in a conversation. Even if I'm gonna share it with you that the outcome that we want is that you convince everyone and that your radical answer becomes the truth. Let's, let's assume that we can get there. I think we're going to get there by, by acknowledging and interacting also on the emotional level about all of this and having some basic empathy for other people and their views. I hate it too. I don't want to sit with a right winger and have empathy for them. They're my enemy. And on the other hand, like that's what it's going to take to move a conversation forward. It's a great advice. And then talking about resources, what resources do you recommend that our listeners in general should check out or uh, maybe books, movies, bands, hip hop bands? (laughs) Well, I talked about Sustamali. I would talk about a lot of other music. I am. I'm a huge super fan of Tamar Nafal from Dam, um, a Palestinian band from Lod. Um, I read every word that he writes on any social media platform and any word that he ever says publicly, I'm, I'm on it. Um, he's brilliant. I also, I was a co-creator on a new miniseries, a podcast miniseries called Groundwork that New Israel Fund produced together with ALMEP, the Alliance for Middle East Peace, which every episode, it's three episodes, every episode tell the story of a Palestinian and a Jewish activist in a mixed city. So Haifa, Lod, and Jerusalem, and we're continuing. So I recommend that. I also think that I mentioned Our Boys, the television series, but I watch a lot of Israeli and Palestinian TV and film. I think that there's a lot of incredibly rich, not just information, but experience to be had also there. Um, Sometimes very heartbreaking stuff like the Law in These Parts by Ranan Alexandrovich or The Viewing Booth also by Ranan Alexandrovich, but sometimes also more hopeful and inspiring like my Saloon Hamoud's film Barbahar in Between or Barack Heyman's film Comrade Dov about Dov Khenin, the politician, which like at the end of that film, you just want to join the revolution. So um, I think I'll leave it there. Yeah. Thank you. These are great sources. Um, and I think it's art and culture is very important. Uh, we didn't talk about the gallery in Umm Al-Faham, the art gallery. Um, I need to have one special episode dedicated to that. Maybe interview Saeed Abu Shakra, the person running it. Yes. <laughs> this was great. Um, thank you very much, Libby, for taking the time to be interviewed. I want to thank our listeners also for listening. Um, I don't know. I mean, if you, I should have given you a little bit of time maybe to add anything if you wanted to add anything. 
I just, I really appreciate you reaching out and I appreciate you sharing a little bit of your story with me too. And if there are things that we can collaborate on or ways that my voice can be helpful to the things that you're trying to do here in this country, then I would love to continue the conversation without all the listeners listening about that too, Anwar. So thank you. Thank you.